Second Kings chapter 10 this evening. Exciting stuff. These lessons are preserved for us to familiarize ourselves with, analyze, so that the Holy Spirit can draw from them later. For me, I, I do think about when I'm driving sometimes, he drove his chariot like Jehu. And it's more of a rebuke than a, not a compliment. Watch that road rage, kid. So, but that's an example. These, these stories are meaningful and not just um, things to entertain us. The Killing Fields, that's the title for this evening's consideration. Uh, these were not battlefields. They were indeed killing fields. Slaughter is going to uh, just cover these pages of Jehu, his life. It is a judgment on the political and the religious wickedness and its influences in the northern kingdom. And that should mean something because we want to see politicians dealt with, the wicked ones. And here in scripture, uh, when we read of the princes, etc., they're, they're part of that political structure, their influence over the land. Those whom... Jehu was dispatched to judge with the sword were wicked people. But Jehu himself was wicked. And he will um, exceed his orders and begin extending his slaughter into the, Davidic, into the Davidic line, the descendants of David. And we'll get to that. And so Jehu slaughters Ahab's descendants. Well, he had a license to kill. We considered that last, last week. He slaughters Ahaz, uh, sorry, Ahaziah's 42 brothers. He did not have license to do that, though they were sympathizers with the house of Ahab. He strikes down the prophets of Baal. Well, there would be cheering on that one. And then he reigns in Israel, and it was unfortunately a reign that was not governed by God. But God, of course, restricted his reign nonetheless. So that God uses a man like Jehu as his scourge. Just because God used him does not mean he was in fellowship with God. And there's a lesson right there. In scripture, God is known to use those who are unfaithful to achieve his goals. God uses Satan, the enemy of God's people. Uh, and as you go through it in scripture, it makes perfect sense in this cursed world world that we live in under the curse from the fall of man. This never excuses the personal sin of the individual being used by God. So here's Jehu. He's the perfect instrument, and he goes through from point to point like lightning bolts, carrying out his orders. But then he exceeds the orders, and to make things worse, he upholds the worship of those uh, idols that represent enemies of God and he is going to be held accountable for, the, accountable for that personally, and it has already been judged and sentenced, and we can only assume after that. He strikes dead any who might claim the right to the throne. He's king now. God has had the prophet Elisha send his servant to anoint Jehu king, and as was the custom of the kings in those days, any potential threat was to be eliminated before it blossomed. 
We went through this with the life of David and the split of the nation, the, uh, the kingdom shortly after Saul's death. It was not a final split. That would come after Solomon. He would, Jehu, would go on to strike the court officials of the kingdom, of the northern kingdom, the priest of Baal, the family and friends. He slaughtered anybody that got in his way. And that is a good point for us. Uh, this is a good point for us to remember that this is Old Testament law. This is not New Testament grace. We're, this is the age of the law not the age of grace. We live in the age of grace. They lived under the law. The, the age of the law went from Mount Sinai to Calvary. Then the transition into this period of grace. And this age that Jehu is in, during this time, God preserved Israel so that he could produce, among other things, but mainly so that God would produce the prophets who would announce to the world and prepare the earth for the coming of Christ, or Messiah, if the Jewish uh, alternative. Also to demonstrate that many will opt out of true religion. The, many of these... In the Old Testament, these Jews, they opted for decadence rather than for obedience and devotion to Yahweh. And they were raised with the right religion. It wasn't as though they were raised in a pagan environment, although some of the Jews have that in their history. But uh, overall, they were raised with the right stuff and they did the wrong thing nonetheless. And we see that today. It is part of the war that all of us are engaged in. And so we try to invest so much in our children in this fight. This present age of grace that we live, of course, is designed to show truth and kindness, the Christ-likeness of God. Or in other words, God, of course, in Christ. And we are to reflect this uh, character of God through the message we preach and hopefully through the lives that we, we live, through faith. Through the word of God, we uphold what God has declared, and it is exclusively given to Christianity to do this. No other religion on earth can give the true word of God. And this was the case with the Jews during the age of the law. In fact, the mission of Christ being one of mercy, not judgment, perplexed the great prophet John the baptizer. He couldn't figure it out. Are you the coming one or do we look for another? Why am I still stuck in jail if you are the Messiah? You're supposed to be dealing with our enemies. Well, this was not, uh, Jesus did not, he was putting an end to the age of intervention and bringing in salvation. And that's why Jesus said, Matthew 26, verse 53, or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? And so there the Lord is saying, I can interfere with this. I can do like Jehu. I can smite the wicked right here on the spot. But that's not why I'm here. And so these dispensations and the theologians, and they've done a fairly good job at this. They've, they've marked about seven of them. You can go up to 11. You can do a little bit more if you want to be a little flexible here and there. But overall, for instance, when man was created, it was the age of innocence. There was no knowledge of sin. And then, of course, came the fall. And, and so these 
are charted out in the scripture. And uh, this is the introduction I'm giving to this story of Jehu. All of this to say as we watch him be used as God's scourge that we do not say this is for the New Testament church. We can go do this to our enemies, so we want to sometimes. We just want, just Lord, can you just pause the age of grace for about five minutes and just reactivate the law just five minutes. That's all I'm asking. Punch this guy in the nose, and then we'll be back to grace. I'll pray for him. Anyway, the night crowd is usually a tough one, I've noticed over the years. You know, they're tired. And Anyway, verse 1 now of Second Kings chapter 10. Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. And Jehu wrote and sent letters to Samaria, to the rulers of Jezreel, to the elders, and to those who reared Ahab's sons, saying, now before we get to verse 2, according to Hebrew phraseology, the way they, they use their language, their, the idioms, the vernacular, the 70 sons, uh, the sons includes grandsons and just the offspring. And there would have been quite a number of them when you factor in the uh, multiple wives, the harem, the concubines, and then the sons of the kings would have, uh, you know, a harem, and it just it would, you would have a prolific people on the, in the palace area who could afford this. Uh, we know from 1 Kings 20 that Ahab had multiple wives, even though he's dead, and his son Joram has just been killed by Jehu. Uh, so there are going to be a lot of uh, kinfolk in the palace left behind after the death of Ahab and Ahab's son, uh, Joram. Uh, these sons and grandsons are the male descendants that represent a threat to Jehu and the northern kingdom overall, because with, this, with them is the preaching of Baal worship. This was um, why God was judging them. They were spreading this, and it was seeping into the southern kingdom also. And it's going to be put to an end. They will still have problems, but they will be slowed down. These uh, descendants of Ahab would have claimed the right to get uh, justice uh, and kill Jehu for killing Joram, uh, that... Um, cycle of vengeance would have gone on, and he knows this, and he's putting an end to it. There are grounds for considering the number 70 here, used here, as symbolic and not literal. When you look back at, uh, in the judges, Abdon had 70 descendants, and then Abimelech, he was the first in the age of the judges, he was the first of the Jews recorded to claim himself, to establish himself as king. That didn't go well. But he killed his 70 brothers. And so you say, well, is that a literal number? Well, it certainly could be. Or it could be a way of saying, a poetic way of saying, he had a lot of them. Uh, either one is fine, uh, I think. It doesn't do any violence to the, the veracity of the word when you begin to look at how the Jews did write things. You, you get to see this the pattern uh, evolve, at least potentially, to the rulers of Jezreel, to the elders, and to those who are reared in Ahab's sons. Now, he's writing this letter to them. Jehu is in Jezreel, 25 miles from Samaria, where he's sending the letter. Evidently, leaders from Jezreel have ran up to uh, Samaria 
uh, and he's addressing them also in, in that city. And there are the caregivers of King Ahab's descendants. Verse 2, Now as soon as this letter comes to you, since your master's sons are with you, and you have chariots and horses, a fortified city also, and weapons, verse 3, choose the best qualified of your master's sons, set him on his father's throne, and fight for your master's house. <laughs> Jehu. Well, first off, Samaria was far more defensible than Jezreel. It was just a naturally fortified city with, with the hills and the dells and just made it difficult for an enemy to come against them. Probably one of the best in the land. Uh, Jehu, playing the psychological war that he plays, he says, pick a leader for yourself to war against me because I'm on my way and I'm bringing my army with me. And so I want you guys to be ready. So you know I've killed your king, and unless you see me as king, uh, you prepare to defend yourself. So he's playing head games with them. He suspected that they did not have the nerve for war against him, having the reputation he had. And he felt that they would surrender their courage to their imagination. You know, start thinking about, you know, what this guy can do, what he will do to them. They're like, you know, we, we might want to just join with him. Verse 4, and there is the proof, of course. But they were exceedingly afraid and said, look, two kings could not stand up to him. How can we stand? And, of course, he killed uh, Joram, the son of Ahab, with an arrow through the heart. And he, he had on command Ahaziah, king of Judah, shot with an arrow. He was wounded, shot with an arrow. He was wounded and chased him down. And eventually they retrieved him and killed him. Uh, most humans have not killed another human. Jehu killed without hesitation when he felt it was necessary. I don't know that he was enjoying it. I think there was some of that for some. I think he, did, he kind of enjoyed killing Jezebel. Uh, but some of the others, I think he felt this was his duty, and it, it made perfect sense. In fact, in many ways, even though he's slaughtering these people, he's, had he not averted war with his terrorist tactics, there would have been more deaths uh, through the battlefields that would have uh, come to be. So when you look at it that way, it's um, not as gory as it may sound just reading the verses, verse 5. And he, and he who was in charge of the house, and he who was in charge of the city, and the elders also, and those who reared the son, sent to Jehu, saying, We are your servants, we will do all you tell us, but we will not make anyone king do what is good in your sight. So they are surrendering without terms. The, the leader, the, the overseer of the palace, the overseer of the city, the heads, uh, those who are uh, the mentors and teachers, the educators of the princes in the palace, that's who he is, uh, who are speaking up there in verse 5, verse 6 now. Then he wrote a second letter to them saying, If you are for me, and will obey my voice, take the heads of the men, your master's sons, and come to me at Jezreel by this time tomorrow. Now the king's sons, 70 persons, were with the great men of the city who were rearing them. And as for your stickler for detail, you might say, well, see, there are 70 persons, that's literal. Well, I, you can't argue with that. 
but it still could be general. <laughs> uh, anyway, Jehu says, prove it. You're going to be loyal to me? I want you to prove it. Now, the Hebrew wording here, I'm told, is intentionally ambiguous, which is not a surprise. Jehu is not only tough, terrifying, but he is very shrewd. His request could mean, you leaders bring the guardians of Ahab's sons to me at Jezreel, according to the Hebrew. Or, according to the Hebrew, his request could be interpreted as telling them to kill Ahab's male descendants. So in the Hebrew, those who really get that language are saying to us, he's being intentionally ambiguous. You say, why is that? Well, he wants them to do the killing, and he doesn't want to get blamed for it. And he knows they're going to know who he is, and they're going to connect the dots, and they're going to kill these people because they're going to read into the letter. We know what he wants. And so this ambiguity allows him to distance himself from further acts of violence in the eyes of the people. Not us. We read the story. and We say, no, Jehu, this is you. But he's justified in this. The, the Ahab's house has to go. They're doing more damage by living than being taken out of the way. He's not going to have a lot of shame. None. Not because... He's a sociopath or a narcissistic type of character that cannot feel shame. Those type of people, the Bible says the wicked know no shame. They can't feel it. Uh, decent people have a sense of shame. Uh, Jehu is, is not going to feel shame because he feels justified. Uh, so uh, that's, a, I think, an interesting point. As you look at, for instance, the news media, the journalists and the liberal media, they have no shame. They they. they they cause more problems. They could stop problems. They, they are diabolical. And you call them out on it, and they don't flinch. It doesn't matter to them. And there are many politicians that you can catch them in the act. They don't care. It doesn't mean anything to them. But they'll turn that on those who have a decent sense. They'll, they'll get rid of them. You need to quit your job. You were, you were caught, you know, doing this or that. And anyhow, a side point. Verse 7 So it was when the letter came to him that he took the king's sons and slaughtered. Pardon me, let me reread that. So it was when the letter came to them that they took the king's sons and slaughtered 70 persons, put their heads in baskets, and sent them to Jezreel. Well, as ghoulish as it is, palace life offered a good and happy life if you were a male which these were, until there was a regime change, and this is what could befall you. In verse 8, then a messenger came and told him, saying, they have brought the heads of the king's sons. And he said, lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until morning. This is just gross. Now, he knows what he's doing. Remember I said he wants to distance himself from this execution? You're going to see that when he calls a press conference. And he's going he's gonna to do this. But decapitation is always shock and awe. No matter how it happens, it's not supposed to happen. This, of course, would reduce the chance of opposition. There would be those, if they were thinking about an uprising, they saw the pile of heads of, of royalty, no less, they would have a second thought. Uh, throughout histories, history, there have been openings for executioners. One ads used to be full of them. <laughs> I don't know one ads for, you know, job opening, great hours, pension. 
need to have no problems killing people. You know, that was how it would go. But uh, anyway, whose ghoul's job was it to collect the heads, cart them up to Jezreel, and stack them in front of the city? What a sick sin world uh, this really is. Anyway, verse 9. So it was in the morning that he went out and stood and said to all the people, You are righteous indeed. I inspired... Uh, let me reread that the phrases, the inflection needs to be right. You are righteous. Indeed, I conspired against my master and killed him. But who killed all these? I mean, he's like, so again, he, he's benefiting from his violent reputation as a killing machine. He, as I mentioned, actually spared more lives uh, than had he not taken these steps. But still, he doesn't want to be known as a mass murderer. So he calls this news conference for his public relations. He says, but who killed all these? Yeah, I did kill Joe Ram. I I shot him with an arrow. But who killed these people? And by doing this, he's washing his hands of the crime. But he's the one that sent that letter up there to, to get this in motion. He is also saying clearly there are others that are not loyal to the house of Ahab. Otherwise, they would not have slaughtered Ahab's descendants like this. I'm not the only one part of this uprising. Yeah, I killed I killed uh, Joram, but who killed these? So he shields himself from the gruesome deed. And uh, we would think that the tutors, those caregivers for these princes, would have fought for their pupils, But honor does not seem to have been widespread in the northern kingdom. Verse 10. Know now that nothing shall shall fall on the earth of the word of Yahweh, which Yahweh spoke concerning the house of Ahab, for Yahweh has done what he spoke by his servant Elijah. Well, this is mock faith on his part. It was convenient for him. Is true what he is saying. And there's an example of, of, of an unbeliever preaching the truth of God's word. And you have a big problem with that. And that's why Jesus, when the demon said, we know who you are, the son of God, he said, be, he said, be muzzled, shut up. The Greek is be muzzled. And the coming from you, is, it's not permitted. There's a conflict of interest that um, has to be upheld. And this is an interesting point because... If the devil can get to tell the truth about God, then he's going to open up the door to tell the lies that he's really after doing, and he gets away with this. Thus, cults are born. But um, he makes it clear that the killing field that he is associated with was by God's scourge on the wicked, and this is prophesied by Elijah. We, that was way back in 1 Kings chapter 21. So he names, he says, his servant Elijah called this long time ago, and it went through Elisha, and then finally the servant, and now Jehu has, is uh, there to announce it. It's odd that he honors God here, but dishonors him with the rest of his life with the idolatry. His disloyalty to Yahweh would later render him unable to protect the land from the Syrians. We'll get that in verses 32-33. But the Assyrians, where this all started... The two kings before he killed them, Ahaziah and Joram, north and south, they were, you know, against Syria. Syria 
coming into the promised land, Jehu was the general there. Joram gets wounded and goes back to uh, Samaria. And then Jehu, of course, is anointed king, goes there and, and kills those two kings. But the Syrians are still out there to take land. And he should have stopped them. And he would have stopped them had he remained loyal to Yahweh. And so there's another lesson for all of us. That God can use us. He can use us in spite of ourselves. He can use us in fellowship or outside of fellowship. And of course, it falls on the individual to decide how it's going to be. You're either going to love the Lord or you're not. And the great difference between David and Hezekiah versus Jehu is God used all of them. They, David and Hezekiah, they loved the Lord, Yahweh, in spite of their faults. Whereas Jehu, he had faults too, but he didn't love the Lord. We have no mention of him. Like, sort of like Esau. We never read it. The God of Esau, the God of Jacob we hear about. How come we don't hear about Esau? Well, he made his choices. He was a man's man. He felt he could do good. If you said, Esau, do you believe in God? He probably would have said, yes, I do. And then gone on to do other things. Are you going to, you know, we're going to go worship the Lord. Esau, you come? No, not right now. I got I to, you know, do this, whatever it is he's doing. Uh, big, those distinctions, they mean something because they, they confront us with a choice when we don't feel in the mood. Where is your heart? Do you want to be in the mood? Because God counts that. If, it was, if it's in your heart, the desire, that, that goes somewhere with God versus the one that just is, and I'm not interested at all. We who believe and love the Lord, we all have met people like that. They claim that they believe in God, but they really have no interest in the things that God is interested in. Verse 11, So Jehu killed all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, and all his great men, and his close acquaintances, and his priest, until he left him none remaining. A very thorough but again, he goes beyond the mandate to execute all of Ahab's officials. It would have been acceptable to execute, execute the priests of Baal. That was a promised land. They were imported by Jezebel and Ahab. They didn't belong there. For this crime, killing the acquaintances, uh, this and the great men, God holds him accountable. We don't get it until you get to Hosea chapter one, then Yahweh said to him, call his name, speaking to Hosea the prophet, Jezreel, where this event is taking place. For in a little while, I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And so later, God brings this up to the prophet Hosea. I've not forgotten what Jehu did. And I want everybody to understand I've not forgotten what Jehu has done. I've let things run on. I've even rewarded the name of Jehu because he was my instrument. And yet, he did wrong, and he's going to pay for that too. By the time Hosea the prophet uh, comes along, Jehu's grandson, Jeroboam II, is king. And he's king for 41 years. Jehu gets to have four, concluding uh, himself uh, and three, three of his descendants, his dynasty, was the longest in the north. Uh, year, as far as years go. After that son, 
that grandson reigned for 41 years. Then his son comes to the throne, Zechariah. Uh, he is assassinated within six months, fulfilling uh, the prophecies uh, here found in Hosea, the judgment on Jehu. So the whole point of this is Jehu was a man given an opportunity. He was very thorough executing his orders, the commandments by God through the prophets. But his heart wasn't with God. And his descendants were allowed to rule. You would assume because, well, if God could find somebody better, he would have raised them up. But then judgment fell on them also. Now, verse 12. And he arose and departed and went to Samaria on the way at Beth Eked of the shepherds. Some landmark. Verse 13. Jehu met with the brothers of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and said, Who are you? And they answered, We are the brothers of Ahaziah. We have come down to greet the sons of the king and the sons of the queen mother. They should have said, We're tourists. <laughs> they should have said anything. Everything they said was wrong. And there's going to be a fresh killing. Well, you know, what's another bloodletting on the way to the theater, I guess? Uh, uh, he, he could tell by their garb their, that they were, you know, somebody. They weren't just, you know, it was a farmer's convention. They would have been wearing the, their version of coveralls. But they gave the wrong answers. They're relatives of the king of Judah, whom he slew. And they don't know this yet. And they're allies with the house of Ahab. And they're boasting about it. They're very comfortable with this. Um... And they mentioned the queen mother, which is either Joram's wife or Jezebel herself. More likely Jezebel, because her character was such she's not going to share the attention with anybody. I'd like to be in that house. All um, of, of these men are going to die. These are, are family and uncles and brothers of Ahaziah, Judah's king, who's dead and they don't know it yet. We've come down to greet the sons of the king and the sons of the queen mother. Ignorant, again, of the revolution that is taking place. Um, but this shows that they are guilty by association. And that's how Jehu's going to take this, because they are. And we, as individuals, have to watch that in our own lives, that we do not become guilty through association. Verse 14, And he said, Take them alive. For a moment. So they took them alive and killed them at the well of Beth Eked, 42 men, and left none of them. So he's, again, the thoroughness of Jehu comes out. As you read the story about Jehu, you just, you know, you sort of just suck your teeth and just sigh that, man, he, he could have been such a dynamo for God in the north. And uh, not, n- not, go- not happening. These men uh, were not related to Ahab. I know you say, I'm confusing Ahab, Jorab. Why can't they give them American names, right? What we now call American names. But uh, I don't know. How else do you teach this without making these references? Because they they do count. You had to expose the congregation to them. They've got to start somewhere. But anyway, where I say they were not, related by blood to Ahab, and yet he kills them, that means he's exceeding his, his orders. 
We covered this briefly when a servant goes beyond what they are told. When the prophet went to anoint Jehu, the, the servant of the prophet, he was told, anoint him and get out of there. And that's what he did. And he went no further. And then we, I, we cited Moses when he was told to speak to the rock. When Moses angry with the people, he strikes the rock, you know, in anger twice. And you know, we have to watch that we do not go beyond God may say to you, I want you to go minister to this person. And just by going over and say, hi, how are you talking to him? And then you invite them home. And God says, I didn't tell you to do that. I told you to say hi to the guy. And, and now, now you go and you have a confrontation. So uh, you were just to be sensitive to the leading of the Lord. Get that confirmation. Try not to move until you get it. It takes discipline to feel like you want to do something, but you're not sure God wants you to do it. And uh, many times we can just wait it out. And uh, God knows how to make his confirmations. I have, I go through this often. Sometimes, sometimes I even ask for, I need a second one. (laughs) And sometimes I now understand the value of on the strength of two or three. See, that third witness is when it's really a big deal. So, okay, I got two, like Gideon with the fleece. I got the two confirmations, but this is a big deal, Lord. Can I have one more? And not to be pushy. I don't do this all the time. It has to be genuine. So um, anyway, he is exceeding his orders. His motivation is fear, not faith. Are you associated with Jezebel and Ahab and those guys? I'm killing you because I'm not taking any chances. Yeah, but where's the trust in God in believing what the prophet said? Too common a practice is to act on some stimulus that lay outside the scripture. And, and you know, we're susceptible to it, so whole churches do it, and they become what we call apostate or watered down. They're stimulated by things that are actually uh, even prohibited in the scripture sometimes. Well, everyone he executed outside of his house, uh, Ahab's house, was not a commissioned execution. Verse 15, now when he departed from there, he met... Jonadab, <laughs> you don't want to meet this guy. <laughs> Jehu is like, you know, the grim reaper. You, you know, anyway, but that's not going to happen here. Jonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he greeted him and said to him, Is your heart right? As my heart is toward your heart. And Jehonadab answered, It is. Jehu said, If it is, give me your hand. And he gave him his hand, and he took him up uh, into the chariot. <laughs> the language in the English could have, you know, double entendres. Give me your hand. Well, with Jesu, <laughs> Jehu, he may cut it off. That's what he meant. That's, a, that's not what happened. I'm just playing with the English here. So here he is, Jehu, fresh from another kill. And he checks with, he sees Jehonadab coming, and he checks to see, are uh, Have you heard about what's going on? Where are you? Are you my friend? I'm friendly towards you. I'm not right with you. These are, he is the patriarch, Jehonadab, to the Rechabites that we read about in Jeremiah 35. We only read about them and their lifestyle in Jeremiah 35. They show up earlier. They're descendants of Moses' father-in-law and then the son-in-law, uh, these the Kenites, 
they were devout. They were somewhat like our Amish in that they did not want to live in the cities. They did not want to farm, unlike the Amish. They were nomadic Bedouins. They, they lived in tents and traveled around. In Jeremiah 35, as Nebuchadnezzar is bringing his armies into Judah, the Rechabites, the descendants of this man, Jonadab, they come to the city for refuge. And God sends Jeremiah to them and says, Jeremiah, I want you to test them. They abstain from wine. And, you know, they, are, they just want to be separate from, like, like the Nazarites. You know, they want to be separated to God. I want you to test them. And Jeremiah offers them wine. Kind of get you something to drink. You know, must be thirsty. And they, they, they refuse. And then Jeremiah holds them up and says, how come God's people cannot be like these Rechabites? Uh, they, 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 they abstain. They, they stick to what they claim they believe. But my people, they claim to believe me, and then they go burn incense to idols. And so this is the beginning of the, this uh, group of people living in Israel. Today, there's another group of people that are sort of a small culture, loyal to the Jews. They're not Jewish. The, 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 the Druze, they, are, they fight with Israel's army, and, and they're respected by, by the Jewish people. And you don't hear about them too much. I'm sure some of you will Google it or look it up after service. <laughs> so uh, coming back to this, this Jonadab, the patriarch of the, uh, the Rechabites that, that come along, Later, he was the kind of man that Jehu needed to help his public relations. So if they saw him in the chariot with Jehu, well, Jehu must be a righteous guy because these guys don't play around. They're, you know, uh, Jonadab, he's, he's just a straight arrow. So this worked for Jehu. We don't read again about what happened. Oh, well, we do. There's a little bit more coming, so we'll get to that. Verse Verse 16. Then he said, come with me and see my zeal for Yahweh. So they had him ride in his chariot. And Jonah, uh, what is the, I don't want to goof the names up any more than I have to. Jehonadab, we know how Jer- Jehu drove the chariot. So he's just bouncing around. <laughs> verse, in verse 16, he says, come see my zeal for the Lord. So Jehu picks up an endorsement and then he endorses himself. Now, this is very important, I think, for us, because it is very dangerous to be proud of one's own zeal. Look how zealous I am. Look how I do it. Look at, look at my Bible. Look at my church. Look at my past. No, no, that one might be, that one might be good if you go here. But you know, you get it. So we Christians, again, it is very dangerous to be proud of your own zeal for the Lord. Don't let your left hand know what the right hand is doing. That's what Jesus was meant by that. Don't for, you, you show kindness to somebody. After you do that, don't remember it. Don't build a little monument. Here's where I gave Lenny, you know, helped him with his flat tire. Don't do that kind of stuff. Uh, that's the lesson that comes out of it. Uh, isn't it good that God does not say, before you can preach the Bible, you've got to be able to do everything in it. <laughs> that would be, oh, man, that would count us all out. That we, well, the whole walking on water thing would just eliminate us right away. Anyhow, coming back to this, um, 
Talk is cheap. He's saying his zeal for the Lord, but it is really for himself. In verse 29, I won't read it now, but we'll, we'll, we'll come to this. He does purge the kingdom of Ahab and the Baal worship, but he does not um, serve Yahweh. Verse 17, and when he came to Samaria, he killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he had destroyed them according to the word of Yahweh, which he spoke to Elijah. So he is, again, finding his spies are out there. He has a few more relatives you missed, and I'll be right there. And uh, so the more killing. Outside of his chariot driving, there's not much that remains attractive from a Christian perspective of Jehu. Now, last Sunday, uh, last week, we talked about when Jehu first encountered King Joram of, of the north that he started talking about his mama. And some of the lads had suggested that, and, and playfully so, I'm sure, that uh, the Bible sanctions talking about the mama jokes. Now, they didn't mean it, but it was funny. But it is a good stopping point to just mention uh, Jehu, there's nothing about him that is spiritually attractive to us. He is a bad guy, even though he, he is, he's a bad guy in two senses, of, in both senses of the word. Another double entendre, right? He is a double entendre. He, he's a bad guy before the Lord. He's evil. And then he's a bad guy. <laughs> I don't know. Again, I, maybe I'm in the wrong neighborhood using this one. Let's go back to verse 19. Some neighborhoods would get it like that. That dude is bad. But here is... Anyway, verse 19. Now, therefore... Call to me and all the prophets of Baal and all his servants and all his priests. Let no one be missing, for I have a great sacrifice for Baal. According to uh, the new, um, Nelson's new Bible dictionary, the pronunciation of the Baal is Baal. And so it's just hard to just repeat these names and not feel a little goofy doing it all the time. Uh, anyway, I don't like saying bow like a bow of a bale of hay or something. It's, I, I go, try to go with baal, but it's hard. Anyway, whoever is missing here in verse 19 shall not live. But Jehu acted deceptively with the intent of destroying the worshipers of Baal. Verse 20, and Jehu said, proclaim a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent throughout all Israel and all the worshipers of that fake God so, they, so that there was not a man left who did not come. So they came into the temple of Baal and the temple of him again was full from one end to the other. See, you know, you can hear yourself saying it. So this is not pleasant. So just to recap, Jehu says to the Rechabite leader, I want you to see how zealous I am for Yahweh, which he, on the outside, was. And so he goes to the, the worshipers of this false god. He says, I want to have a big feast for him. You think Ahab served this god? Wait to see what I have in store. But he's lying. He wants to get them all together so he can kill them. And, and that's what he is he's doing here. He's going to pull it off. And it's, it's admirable from the position of those day, those times, in that period of time. Verse 22. 
And he said to the one in charge of the wardrobe, bring out vestments for all the worshipers of Baal. So they brought out vestments for them. Verse 23, And Jehu and Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, went into the temple of Baal and said to the worshipers, Search and see that no servants of Yahweh are here with you, but only Baal's worshipers. Verse 24, So they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had appointed for himself 80 men on the outside and said, If any of the men whom I have brought into your hands escapes, whoever lets him escape, it shall be his life for the life of the other. Okay, so <clears throat> he's finding out, find out if there's anybody who worships Yahweh here because we're going to get those guys out. And really what he's doing, he's protecting them. He doesn't want them slaughtered with these false worshipers. Then Jehu, who believed in terrorizing people because he believed it achieved his results, said to his men, if you let anybody get away, you're going to die. And it was very effective doing this. And he just, he kind of liked this guy if he were just good. Verse 25. Now it happened as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering that Jehu said to the guard and to the captains, go in and kill them. Let no one come out. And they killed them with the edge of the sword. Then the guards and the officers threw them out and went into the inner room of the temple of that guy, that false guard. So after they killed them, <coughs> pardon me, <clears throat> they just tossed the bodies out and let somebody else deal with them. That's what it says when they, they cast them out. Uh, and then they're going to watch what they do. Verse 26. And they brought the sacred pillars out of the temple of Baal and burned them. Okay, so these were images that were part of their worship. But verse 27, and they broke down the sacred pillar of Baal. It's a separate one, evidently larger, perhaps even structural. And tore down the temple of Baal and made it a refuse dump to this day. So they raised the place. Literally, where it says refuse dump, it's place of dung. Now, we use the word literally to distinguish from metaphor. This generation is now, after they've butchered the word awesome, (laughs) they've started on the word literally. I was literally standing there, literally. And it's just like, stop it. Stop it. Just say you were standing there. We don't think you're being mystical about it. (laughs) It's just... Well, so... Uh, this is the proper use of the word literal because it is making the distinction. He turned this temple of worship into a public latrine. That's the idea. Uh, He was, again, thorough. He demolished this temple. And uh, this would discourage anyone thinking, well, we could just rebuild it. Uh, It was now a sewer. Verse 28, thus Jehu destroyed Baal from Israel just like that. Yeah, well, that won't stop me having to read that name again in future Bible studies, I'm sure. (laughs) Um, Verse 29, however, Jehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who had made Israel sin, 
that is, from the golden calves that were at Bethel and Dan. Well, any righteous Jew reading this would immediately be, you know, just disgusted with this statement that Jehu did all of this for God, and yet he holds on to enemies of God, these demonic concoctions. These centers of false worship were created to maintain the rivalry between true worship in Jerusalem and false worship everywhere else. And it's beyond us to know how he could do such a thing, how he could have this enemy religion, uh, that he could embrace it after being so used by the true God. Therefore, the decay of the nation continued and spread deeper into the southern kingdom. And the Assyrians, of course, being a testimony of that because they took Israel, much of Israel's territory. Then that creates a whole other story by the time we get to Isaiah with the northern kingdom and the Syrians then getting together and trying to get the southern kingdom, Judah, to fight against the coming Assyrians. But then the Judah says, no, I'm not going to go with you. And they said, well, we need to kill that king. And then he calls up to the Assyrians. And the Assyrians said, we'll be happy to help you. And so you got this whole just soap opera going on. They just adhered to the Lord. It wouldn't have happened. So we we'll, won't get to that until we get to Isaiah. Anyway, uh, verse 30. And Yahweh said to Jehu, because you have done well in doing what is right in my sight and have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, your son shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. Now, God evidently sent a prophet to communicate this because the pattern was to go through the prophet to the kings. Verse 31, but Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of Yahweh, God of Israel, with all his heart, for he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, who had made Israel sin. And one of his grandsons will be called Jeroboam II, actually. Jeroboam is the one that introduced calf worship into the northern kingdom, which essentially said, see this golden calf? This is Yahweh, and he's the one that led you out of Egypt, and which was forbidden. And uh, they did it anyway, and they got away with it. Well, amongst the people they did. So in verse 31, but Jehu took no heed. Uh, this is the story of his personal failure as the instrument in the hand of God, and yet his heart was corrupt. His hands were right, but his heart was wrong. Another lesson, verse 32. In those days Yahweh began to cut off parts of Israel, and Hazael conquered them in all the territory of Israel. He's the one that the prophet looked at and started weeping because he knew Hazael was going to kill his master, Ben-Hadad, and he did. Well, now he then comes to take territory. Verse 33, from Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh. From, well, all right. However, I don't recall how to pronounce that, and I'm not going to force it out. My tongue is actually tired. This is pooped. (laughs) Have you come across an American that can't speak French but uses French words? Is it not annoying? (laughs) Well, I don't want to do that with the Hebrew. I try not to do that with the Greek and sound like, well, am I impressing you? Like, you know better. Uh, I could could fake it, and you wouldn't know. You'd hear another guy do it, then it'd be a debate. He did it differently. Well, he's wrong. Anyway, 
uh, including Gilead and Bashan. See, I distracted you from those words and just moved right on through it. Like, like you're going to go to one of those places tomorrow and just verify it. Hey, I went to Manasseh, like you said, and you mispronounced it. All right, so coming back to this, um, there's just nothing really to add. Uh, this territory was lost because of Jehu. And um, idolatry brings defeat. Verse 34. Now the rest of the acts of Jehu, all that he did and all his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Verse 35, so Jehu rested with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. Then Jehoahaz, his son, reigned in his place. Well, physically, he cleaned house, like David or Hezekiah would have. But spiritually, he chose the baseless lies. And, and baseless, there's no reason, he had no reason to believe those things. And that's what idolatry does. Um, you know, people who throw salt over their shoulder, you know, to, I don't know, ward off evil spirits, carry a rabbit's foot. There's no basis for that. Uh, whistling through a graveyard won't protect you if somebody's hiding behind a stone waiting to mug you. Uh, in fact, it'll let them know where you are. So uh, that, that's superstition is without basis. Our faith, of course, has the, the greatest basis for our faith other than reason is prophecy and seeing prophecy fulfilled. Well, uh, verse 36. And the period that Jehu reigned over Israel and Samaria was 28 years. So he had a long run. And he swept out the house of Ahab and impudent Jezebel, along with the, that duo's imported religion. Uh, he's rewarded, of course, with a dynasty that um, lasted over a hundred years. I don't know that there's anything else to say about Jehu. Uh, the, the warning again, it's possible to be an instrument in the hand of God, yet never be in fellowship with God. Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons and prophesy in your name? And of course he says, get away from me, I never knew you. So we close with Second John, verse 8. Look to yourselves that what we do not that we do not lose those things we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. Uh, let's pray. Now, Father, one of the exciting things about your word is that to study it forces us to think, to not uh, be removed from the realities that surround us. And in doing so, we discover truths that would otherwise be bypassed, that are useful to your glory, to ministry towards unbelievers, to the edification of each other, our brothers and sisters. We thank you for your word. It does so much. We don't have to go far in this world to find a place where your word is not honored and see how life is there. We um, pray that we never lose sight of these important things. 
And we ask that you get us all home safely tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.